A couple of weeks ago, I talked about OU's interest in 2021 quarterback Brock Vandegrift. It was a brief moment on recruiting, something outside of my college football comfort zone. At the end of my comments, I intimated that Vandegrift wouldn't be brought up on this podcast again for another two years. This is what I get for making bold proclamations. Last week, Vandegrift gave Lincoln Riley his verbal commitment. Riley locked down not just the best quarterback in the 2021 class, but the best player in the 2021 class, that according to rivals. One of my biggest complaints about the world of recruiting is the fact that none of these players' commitments to a school are set in stone until that national letter of intent is signed. The disconnect being for me that OU can technically get a commitment from a five-star safety this summer only to see that guy decommit next summer. But don't worry, at least that guy will be able to not once, but twice, tweet out a picture of him wearing a cool jersey with the word committed attached to the photo. Us humans, especially teenagers, are fueled by the social media likes and retweets. But when it comes to the commitment of Brock Vandegriff, I've been reliably informed that players like him rarely decommit. That's because Vandegrift is a quarterback, and apparently the top quarterbacks in each class commit to teams pretty early in their recruiting process. After all, Spencer Rattler committed to the Sooners two years ago, in June of 2017, and now he's on campus. Unless something incredibly unusual happens between now and the early signing period in December of 2020, Brock Vandegrift will only have one social media post that says, Committed. I've seen the huddle highlight tape of Vandegrift, as well as a couple videos from camps he's attended. He looks really good. Tall, strong arm, really good mechanics, especially for a kid who's entering his junior year. Athletic with the ability to run when needed. Vandegrift's tape looks pretty darn good, and he's still got two more years of high school football to get even better. Here's the most interesting thing about Vandegrift's commitment, at least to me. He plays at a very small private high school in Georgia. Class A ball. Georgia's got a Class A for private schools and a Class A for public schools. The biggest schools in the state play, get this, Class 7A. In all my years of covering high school football, I've never heard of a state that goes up to seven classes. Heck, Texas just recently expanded to 6A a few years ago. When was the last time the top-rated player in a recruiting class played at one of the lowest levels of high school football in their respective state? I'm genuinely intrigued by the kind of competition Vandergriff sees on a week-to-week basis. When I watched that huddle tape, in the back of my mind, I qualified everything with, yeah, but this isn't anything like what he'll see when he plays at Oklahoma. Fair or not, that was in my head. But here's the thing, it must not matter. After all, Georgia wanted him, Auburn wanted him, Nebraska, Alabama, Clemson. Name a relevant school, and they wanted Brock Vandegrift. And oh yeah, Lincoln Riley wanted him and got him. When it comes to offense and specifically quarterbacks, there's nobody better right now than Lincoln Riley. The Spencer Rattler era hasn't even begun, yet we may already know his successor. All right, you know what? I'm done. That's just way too far into the future for me. Can September 1st get here already? I'm Lee Benson. This is West of Everest. Just outside the 17. Into round. An option to Mark Bradley. Wants to throw. Go man open. Clayton. 
special teams, and you go for the throat. That's Oklahoma. A little razzle-dazzle from Bedlam 2003. Mark Bradley to Mark Clayton. 17-yard touchdown, and the Sooners rolled Oklahoma State 52-9 that season. Once again, welcome into West of Everest. Coming up on the show today, I'll ask Grant if he's got any thoughts on Brock Vandegrift now that he's committed to Oklahoma. A board-certified doctor has reached out to the show with some positive opinions on Jalen Redmond's blood clots. We'll read through his thoughtful message and also react to it. West Virginia, the next team up on our early look at OU's 2019 opponents. And I've got a random topic that doesn't have anything to do with football that I'll hit Grant with at the end of the show. And I think you should stick around to the end of the show to hear this discussion because I promise that all of you listening will have an opinion on this particular subject. So I'm not going to really waste any time. Let's bring in Grant. And uh, Grant, I booked my hotel for Big 12 Football Media Days, which is next month. And I got to say, if you have the vacation time, I could probably swing you a credential if you want to come down to Dallas in a few weeks. Wow. West of Everest in the Big D, huh? I, I mean, know. I could actually, probably I could put tempting. down Grant Benson, West of Everest podcast and see if we have any clout. Jeez, and man, that, that might, doesn't work. That might know, actually news nine. If that if that did work, geez, we could we, we could build up quite the following down there. See, what will happen is I got to work it, so I got to do all my work stuff, but then you can go around and just do one-on-one interviews. You could just get like Joe Klatt. Hey, Joe, what up, man? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, Grant. Yeah, I'm sure you listen to the show. You could get like a one-on-one with Joe Klatt. Maybe Bruce Feldman will be there. You could do a one-on-one with him. Just get all these guys, and then they obviously they'll want you for their podcasts, and then it'll just be one of those reciprocal things, and boom, just like that, we got way more listeners for the 2019 that sounds, season. It sounds like a foolproof plan. Um, I don't know. I might take you up on that one. I gotta be honest with you. That's a little, it's, it's kind of, that doesn't sound too bad. That sounds pretty fun. Actually. When's, when is, uh, when is OU's day at media days? The Monday. So it's July, look at my calendar, July 15th. Okay. Well, I am, I am going on vacation that week, but later <laughs> in the week. So, um, yeah. you know, oh, that would be fun though. That would be a good time. I'm sure I it's could. At, it's at Jerry's World this year, which is going to, I'm sure, be way more annoying than it has been in the past because before the hotel was connected to the star there in Frisco and it was so convenient. You just woke up in the morning, you went downstairs and you were there. Really? Okay, Whereas, so that's yeah, weird because I heard really good reviews from the times that it's been at the at the practice. It was just last year, I think, right? No, it's been at the practice. Yeah, like, yeah, the last, I think the last two years it's been in Frisco. I only went last year, and it was great. It was uh, very similar to whenever I I've been to I went to SEC Media Days twice when I covered Texas A and M, and that setup was great because it was all inside the hotel in Birmingham, and it was just yeah you woke up and you went downstairs and you were there you were at work and that was the same thing as it was last year at the at Big Twelve and I believe the last couple of years because they they moved it from I think downtown Dallas to the Star in Frisco but now this upcoming uh, this year, in a few weeks, it's going to be back. Not, I shouldn't say back, but it's going to be at Jerry's World where the Cowboys play, which is a different location, and I can't imagine the hotel situation is going to be as convenient. So that will probably be annoying, so not great, but you know, we'll figure it out. It won't be that big of a deal. I'm, just, I'm, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for understanding. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, real quick before we get to Brock Vandegrift, I noticed, did you notice too that Sports Illustrated, no top 100 player list? I did notice that. I was I was kind of refreshing a little bit the last couple of days. So was I. Hoping I would see one, but nothing. Um, did I, I, even, I was even searching for like other sites with the top 100 player list. Couldn't really find anything. I came across some random dude who tweeted one out. He had a blue check mark, though. And it was actually, but I couldn't really find a ton of stuff that I disagreed with on it. So I was just like, that kind of pissed me off a little bit. Hmm. But I don't know. Maybe I maybe I need to find that the the rando blue check mark guy and see what uh, see what his top one hundred player list looked like. See if we could could rip that apart a little bit. But on first blush, it was pretty uh, pretty accurate in my in my summation. Well, there's two scenarios. Either number one. SI is going to release their top 100 player list later in the summer than they did last year. Or two, they were so embarrassed by their list a season ago that they thought, you know what, let's just not do this again because we were so bad at it the first time. I'm going to lean towards number two. I don't expect one coming out this year. I just, I, I think they're just going to go ahead and punt on it this time. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really ready to make that proclamation, but you could be right. Who knows? I, I, I looked, I did a quick search. Lee. It was Matt Hinton who came out with this list. And he's a he's a previous writer at Grantland, CBS Sports, uh, Doctor Saturday, which I know is the the Yahoo Sports college football arm or whatever. Um, he's a guy I've, I've heard of before. His list is is not terrible. Lee, do you want to hear top five? His top five players for college football in 2019. Yeah, there's one that I think is wrong, and it's number five on the list. But I'll start at the very top. Lee, number one on his list is Tua. T- okay, so how do you pronounce it? Because it's it's it's, it's Tonga Viola, isn't it? With it with yeah, it. It's- it's Tua like, Tunga Vailoa. So there's Tua a Tunga Vailoa. There's a there's a solid Vailoa or Viola. There's a there's a silent N in his name, and I've only I. This is obviously something that I noticed last year as well. But I've been I've I've been watching and and listening, you know, to a lot more stuff the last couple weeks, and and I've I've noticed like a a very very clear effort for for kind of journalists and other people who have been podcasting to try to pronounce his name correctly. Um, and so I'm going to do that as well. So it, it's Tua Tonga Viola, correct? Tung. Tonga Viola. Yeah, and there was a Twitter video, and I'm not sure it might be on YouTube too, and this was a while back where he legitimately is teaching people how to say his own name, and so it's coming from him. And I didn't see that until about midway through last year because I was mispronouncing his name for the first part of the year last season. Then I saw that video. I was like, oh, well, you know, bless Tua for – realizing that his name was difficult to pronounce and actually doing a video where he says it himself and pronounces it for everybody. So when you watch him do that and you listen to how he says it, it's you're never going to mispronounce it again. It's real easy. Tonga Viola. So look that so look that up. I think it's easy it's easy to remember if you just kind of if if you try to sear the tongue part into your memory because that's obviously the weirdest part about it is that there's there's just like a silent n in there when but yeah. you know but anyway, we'll we'll continue on this list. So number one, we're gonna keep was, calling him Tua because that's easier. So that's he's way number one. easier. Number one is Tua Tungaviola. Lee number two is Trevor Lawrence, uh, which I don't really have too much of a problem with, even though I think his, I I still think probably give him a little too much credit for the two playoff games. And yes, I understand he was amazing. He was great. You judge him over the course of the entire season. He he was not even a top ten quarterback in college football over the course of last season. So I, I do want to pump the brakes a little bit there, um, but I fully, fully admit that by the based end of the season. Based on what metric? He wasn't a top 10 quarterback based on what? Well, he just he just really... He, I bet he was. He was not the engine that drove Clemson's offense at all. 
And so mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure another another form of argument would be like, well, yeah, but by the time that he got to the playoff and they were playing two top ten defenses in the semifinals in the national championship game, they did make him the focal point of the offense, and he was great. I I would accept that line of argument as well, I suppose. Um, All right. But anywho, I, I just I just wanna I wanna see a little more before we before we say you know he's the best player in the country, um, and I I, t- I touched on this last on the on, on on this last week as well. Uh, he has not done enough in my mind to to call him a better player than Tua. Tua just had one of the most dominant best seasons in the history of college football last season, and Trevor Lawrence. Uh, his his playoff performance, notwithstanding, did not have that performance over the course of the the 2018 season. So that's that's my that's my rationale there. Um, Lee, number three on the list was one that I I like. It's a really sneaky pick. I don't think it's one that anyone would really uh, would would have guessed up to this point. But I think it's it's probably correct. Lee, he has Grant Delpit, the LSU safety, as the number three player. And I like that pick a lot. He was, uh, whenever I watched LSU last year, he was the guy who stood out to me the most on their team by far. Come on. He, you like this pick because he has the same name as you. That's oh. legitimately, you've never heard of this guy until you. You don't think I've heard of Grant Delpit? No. No, you're like, oh, this guy's got a great name. Therefore, I'm cool with this pick. He actually, you probably think he should be number one. Who the heck is Grant Delpit? Pitt? Never heard of that guy. The only guy in LSU in the defensive backfield I heard of last year was Greedy Williams. I think you need to watch a little more college football, Lee. Is that, you have yeah, a, is that right? You have a dedicated college football podcast. You should probably watch more of it. Okay. Well, I refuse to believe that you've heard of this guy until until you've read that list, but continue. Who's number four? Jeez. Number four is Jerry Judy, which I, I don't have a problem with. He had a really great season. Number five is the one that I'm kind of scratching my head at, but, I, but at the same time, I sort of understand it. He has Travis Etienne, the running back for Clemson. Hmm. Um, but this is me. I don't. I don't really think any running back should be that high, like ever, unless it's like a transcendent talent. So um, that's just me. Which though. he is not. I, no, no, he is. He's very. Not, he's not very he, ordinary. I mean, he's just kind of a guy. I, wow, that's that's shocking. Yeah, kind of. I I honestly don't. I can't really tell the difference between him and Wayne Gallman, who was the feature back at Clemson before Travis Etienne. Yeah, uh, they're essentially the same player in my mind. Uh, Etienne, he could prove me wrong, and he could be like a high NFL draft pick and have a great career or something. But eh, I don't. I don't really see it with him. All right. Oh, well, okay. That was fun. Yeah. The first. Uh, the first OU player that appears on this. Oh yeah. List, How many OU players are on the list? Uh, I think there's three OU players on the list total. Um, the first one to show up on the list is C.D. Lamb at 22. Um, and then Jalen Hurts is right behind him at 23. And then I believe Kennedy Brooks is the third. He is at, uh, he's on, he's 86th on the list. Oh, good. And so like, it's, or he's 82nd, sorry. And I don't know, like, I suppose the, just the one issue I guess I would have with this is, I, you know, I don't think there's that big of a gap between Travis Etienne and Kennedy Brooks. <laughs> like... <laughs> That's yeah, I yeah, I mean, and, and there, there's some either. other stuff as well. well it's um, running the, back. It's just it's a position that is a dime a dozen. I mean, you got to be really, really good to to stand out to make be a difference maker. Yeah, you have to be a guy who who it, like it doesn't really matter what your blocking situation is. You're gonna make plays. Um, yeah. I don't I don't think Travis Etienne is that guy at all. But also, I'm not sure if Kennedy Brooks is that guy as well. So, just to be yeah. fair. Um, Lee, the first Big 12 player that shows up on this list is at number eight. Who would you guess it is? 
Mm. This is one that I, I, I disagree with, but... Um, is it offense I, or defense? It's on offense. I guess that's the stupid question, considering it's the Big 12. I mean, it's a wide receiver. The fir- oh. Uh, it's not C.D. Lamb, obviously. Yeah, think of think of the think of the the guy who statistically had the best season in the Big Twelve last year for wide receivers. You're gonna, yeah, you'll be you'll be beating yourself over the head when I say it, or when it or when it gets to you. I don't know who is it. Oh, it's Tylen Wallace. Oh, wow. So yeah, kind of. I yeah, I don't I don't know if I would consider him a top ten player in college football, but um, Tylen Wallace is very not- good. Not he's better player. Good. He's not a better player than C.D. Lamb. No, he's much. not. He's so not. That's, but that's what's confusing about. It. I mean, he's a good player. Don't get me wrong. He's a really good player. He's, he's he really might, good. He's probably at this point. He's he's probably he's ahead of where James Washington was, which is saying a lot because he's. I think he's the best, like statistically, the best receiver ever at Oklahoma State. I th- I think he's more so. well rounded than than James Washington for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tylen Wallace reminds me a lot of Sterling Shepard. Lot. I I think they're very similar players. No, he's a really good player. But yeah, I. I certainly would not uh, have him above C.D. Lamb at this point, but uh, obviously both very, very good. All right, let's talk about Oklahoma and Brock Vandegrift again. Talked about him in the opening take. We'll bring him up again here quickly. The top quarterback in the 2021 class. He's got two more years of high school left, and Granny's like he's like half our age at this point, and he's committed to Oklahoma. So not really sure why I put that in there with the, I guess, trying to make us feel old, but uh, I kind of feel obligated to say this part every time that we talk about things like this. This, of course, not a recruiting podcast, so don't expect us to have any sort of inside info on these kids, and if we do, obviously, we'll let you know, but uh, we do have opinions sometimes, and I'm sure, Grant, you have maybe something, so do you have anything, any takeaways from Vandegrift committing? Do you want the thoughtful take, or do you want the emotional take, or do you want both? Ooh, I didn't know I had a choice. And I, uh, let's see, what's, give me the thoughtful take first, and then we'll end with emotions, because emotions, uh, it, it's it's a little more interesting because they don't really matter. Okay, so. They shouldn't, uh, and when you look at things, you know, yeah, factually sure. and just, yeah. All right, so, all the, say, yeah. so the thoughtful take is that, um, one, we know recruiting is the lifeblood of college football. And in order to win a lot of games, you have to have a lot of good players. And we know that quarterback is the most important position in all of all of sports, just in general. Um, so in that light, and also in terms of you know, in terms of just deeper recruiting stuff, uh, this is a really big deal. It 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 actually is. Um, one, they have their quarterback, and he's also the number one player in the country for the twenty twenty one class. And that just sort of sets the stage for your entire class, so he can be out recruiting guys. Um, and I and I know just in terms of recruiting circles, that's a big deal to have to have the to have the quarterback in your class already um, out recruiting guys because a lot of the times quarterbacks complete complete classes or or make it whole and whatnot. So it's always a good thing to have that out of the way, um, so you can have a guy out there lobbying and get, and getting other guys to join up in the class. And also the other significant aspect of it is that they just went into Georgia, which probably has per capita the most uh, the most football talent in the country per capita. Um, and they just took the number one player out of Georgia two out of the last three years. That is that's significant from you know from a recruiting blueprint uh, perspective, and I don't think you can look at it any other way. Um, if Brock Vandegrift truly is the number one player in the class, and he is all the way through 
um, when he actually signs on the dotted line and, and faxes in his letter of intent. Um, he's going to be in the ear of other Georgia guys. And stuff like that will last uh, not just one class, but classes down the line as well. If OU can actually get their foot into Georgia and have a legitimate recruiting impact in that area, that is, honestly, the significance of that is is hard to gauge at this point in time because what's the reason why, why the SEC sort of has a stranglehold on college football? It's because they're in the region that has all the best players. And if OU can kind of, can sort of wiggle into that region and start picking off some of those players as well. Like they already have done uh, in, in some instances with like someone like Trey Sermon, Jaden Hazelwood, and now with Brock Vandegrift. If they can go into Georgia and that region and start taking defensive players as well, um, then you might be looking at the next great era of OU football in terms of talent and, and the guys they get in here. Um, so I, I think it's most significant because of that. Um, but I also have kind of an emotional thought about it as well. All right, let's pause there before the emotional thing. So you mentioned the the Georgia aspect of it. Is does Shane Beamer just have his fingerprints all over this? Then coming in from I mean, I believe he's he's yeah. got I mean he's got a recruiting background. I'm looking at he's I can't I mean I don't know if he how much recruiting he does or I mean I'm sure they all do some recruiting, but I mean coming from Georgia, I know I guess he wasn't at Georgia for very long, but I wonder how much of a how much of a factor he has been in getting these guys and maybe the connections that he made while he was in Athens. I wonder, I, I, that's the first thing I kind of thought of when you brought up the whole Georgia thing. It's like, okay, they've gotten two of the last three years, the top player in Georgia, and Shane Beamer's getting ready to enter his second season at Oklahoma. I wonder how much of a factor he has been in contacting these players with, with Lincoln Riley or maybe these players listening to Oklahoma. Do you have any, uh, any yeah, thoughts I'm pretty or sure, theories on that? I'm pretty sure there was a Rivals article, and it was a free one. I think everyone can still go on and read it. Um, that dropped right after Vandegrift committed, and I'm pretty sure they, dro- they it was a it was Lincoln Riley and Shane Beamer who were recruiting him. So um, I would like to... So yeah, maybe he's I'll, been a recruiting coordinator previous previous spots when he's at South Carolina... Uh, looking through his bio right now, but okay. So I uh, just throwing it out there. I mean, it's, it's not a groundbreaking thought. Cause I'm sure many of you have probably thought that as well. And again, this just kind of shows you the, the lack of uh, interest. I take honestly, when it comes to recruiting, I don't know this stuff. I mean, it's just, it's kind of there. I just, I love the on field aspects of football. That's kind of what I pay attention to the most too. So uh, take that how you, how you'd like, um, you want to move on to your emotional opinion? Yeah, sure. Uh, the emotional opinion was honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't too excited about it. Um, and that it's, it's not, it's, <laughs> and it's, it, it's not because it's, it's not because I'm like mad or anything. They just got the number one quarterback and number one player for 2021. It's not, it's not that at all. It's just that I just offensive commits these days just don't really move the needle for me. Because I know their offense is going to be, as long as Lincoln Riley is, is there, I know their offense is going to be national championship caliber and awesome, no matter what. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I and I just I just saw Oklahoma not win a national championship with, you know, with the two guys who put up maybe the best seasons by a quarterback back-to-back in the history of the sport, and they couldn't, they, they couldn't get over the hump in those years. Um, so... I'm sorry, but OU's not going to get over the hump and, until they start getting until they start getting five-star defensive linemen and five-star defensive backs. 
And that's mm-hmm. that, that that's that's my emotional reaction to it. Um, obviously, I hope that this is the start of all of that happening, and it, it could it, it could be. That's why I wanted to, to put the thoughtful take in there. Um, but you know, I'm excited about this. There's no way in hell he will be as good as or better than Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray. And so it's hard for me to get super excited about it. It's hmm, quite um, the take right there. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just hard for me to get super excited about it based on that. And, and yes, of course, I'm letting the last four seasons sort of, um, uh, sort of, <laughs> sort of guide like what I'm thinking here. But, um, I don't know. Call me when it's a defensive lineman or a D-back. Dead serious. Yeah. I mean, they got that Perion Winfrey a few weeks back, right? The junior college transfer who's, I think, a four-star and that's nice. Defensive and that, and that lineman. Was a, so, I mean, that's a start. And that's a I start. Suppose. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's hard for me to get too excited about that as well when I see this guy who is supposed to be sort of this, uh, this recruit that everyone wants. But in Juco last year, he only had 10 and a half tackles for loss. Um, I, I, I would, I sure would like to see production is all, but I mean, look at the guy. I mean, he looks like a, he looks like a Greek God. I'll give him that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he certainly looks like the guys that Alabama and Clemson churns out in terms of like his body type and whatnot. But, um, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like to see some production and I, I, I want to see the stud defensive guys in here. I, I mean, this is, well, of course. Yeah. I, I'm. I think you can you can make a pretty convincing argument that that's the most important position group in college football, and not even quarterback. Um, and my, you know, my, my, my evidence for that is that OU has had the best player in the country at, you know, presumably the most important position for the last four years, and they didn't nothing came of it except for three Big Twelve titles, uh, and some playoff so, appearances, and some playoff. Or I'm and, sorry, and, four four Big Twelve titles, and, and uh, some one and dones in the playoff, and some one and dones in the playoff. So. And maybe maybe that maybe it's it's this is just June and we're getting into the dog days and I'm just um, I'm just being really cynical. But hey, if if if, if Brock Vandegrift's commitment, if that um, if if that means that they're going to start pulling in the big time defensive linemen and defensive backs, then then obviously it's it's a very positive thing. Let's stick with him too. And am I making too much of a big deal about the fact that he plays at? a low level, a very small school in Georgia? Because I've been... Yeah, I think you might be. Okay. Well, that's the thing. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is based off of these camps that he goes to. And when you're a player of his stature, I'm sure he's been going to all these quarterback camps and uh, the opening and all this. I don't know a whole lot about this stuff, but I'm sure he's been doing this. He's been on the circuit probably for years, maybe since he was before, before he was even in high school. So a lot of these coaches, I'm sure, around the country, and plus his dad's the coach of the team, so he's got connections. A lot of these coaches know him already, and I'm sure they're basing a lot of this stuff off of what they've seen from him at these camps. And so I've been trying to look in and you know just do Google searches and stuff. It's like, hey, you know, what does it look like? You know, is it is it really that bad a competition? Or like maybe it's one of those things where since it's a private school, they actually do play against a lot of really good teams. But I was looking at the Max Prep schedule on their website. It looks like their entire schedule last year was all against Class A schools. It's not like they played a team you know in three A or four A or five A. And so I'd like, I mean, if anyone listening to this knows anything about Georgia high school football or has an idea of, hey, you know, maybe maybe you know, you're overreacting. Like, really, the, the teams they're playing against actually are pretty good there. I'd like to know because I haven't been able to find any, any information on that at all. 
And again, he's got two more years of high school, so he's gonna he's only gonna get better. He's not gonna get worse, obviously. And the fact that Lincoln Riley wants him shows that he's got a lot of talent. And so maybe it's one of those things where maybe, yeah, once he gets to Oklahoma, perhaps he'll be slightly behind the eight ball because he hasn't seen a whole lot of great great teams against him and talent against him. But it's not like he's gonna be asked to probably play right away. He'll get you know a year to kind of get his feet wet, get get used to the speed of the game, and ultimately it won't matter that much that he is from a smaller school. I just think it's very interesting that the top player in the nation in that class is playing Class A football. I just, again, I'm not pretty a sure, expert. Pretty sure Adrian Peterson played Class A football in Texas. No, no. Palestine's Class 3 or 4A. I mean, which was, was, it, al- was it, though, in 2003? Yeah, yeah. It was, okay. it was, a, it was a two, it was, it was at, I think at worst, maybe two levels down from the top. Okay. So well, it's not like he was playing, you know, single a or two a football no palestine was i think at least three a back when peterson was there and so you you bring up these camps though and i I think it's just important to to mention this as well if he's going to these camps lee that means he's competing and presumably doing well against you know the other best players in the country in his class as well Mm -hmm. so I, i i don't think Generally, I don't think you're you're made the number one player in your class unless you are seen heads up against other guys in your class. And I know I know Rivals probably has like all these camps and stuff like that. And so I'm assuming that he has he has he's shown up to these camps and he's probably been very impressive against the other best players in yeah. his class, which is why he's and also like don't I mean he's big. The guy's he's he's like sixteen and he's already six two, like two hundred pounds. And um, I know there's like video of him because he was at the camp um, at OU a few weeks ago, and he looks good. I mean, like hit it's he's very smooth. The ball comes out of his hand really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, and the fact that he's he's not even a junior in high school yet, like he he looks good. Like don't get me wrong here. I mean, he's if he's if he comes to OU oh, yeah, totally, and he, and he totally. stays here throughout his eligibility, he's probably going to be a really good player for OU. So like, don't yeah. get me wrong there. Um, but like I said, they've. They've had the best player in the country at that position the last four seasons, and nothing to show for it. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good way to end it. That's a hundred percent true. But if also, I, can I yeah. can I add this too? And this actually has nothing to do with Brock Vandegrift. Um, Lee, early on in our in our podcasting careers, so right when we right when we launched West of Everest in August of two thousand and seventeen, um, Jace McClellan, who is about to be a senior running back uh, for Alito, Texas this upcoming season, committed to OU as a freshman. Um, and I remember us kind of poo-pooing that, saying, well, good for him, but, you know, talk to us again in three years. And I, I just wanted to bring that up because Jace McClellan is still not on campus at Oklahoma. He's still in high school. And, he, I mean, and there's, there's talk of him, like, looking around and stuff at other mm-hmm. schools now. So it's, um, I don't know. The, the, whole, the whole thing to me is just kind of, um, if, if if you like the ups and downs of recruiting, um, by all means, please. Like, I mean, I, I I understand. Like, I follow it as well. Um, but uh, it's it it is it is kind of difficult for me to be super engaged and really excited, especially when we're when we're multiple classes out from them actually signing. And also, it's another player who's on offense, a running back. And I saw actually some of his tape recently, and he looked really good. And he plays. Oh, Jason McClellan looks awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he plays five A football in Texas, just one one uh, class down from the top. But uh, yeah, I, the video, the highlight I saw, he looked really good. Oh, uh, and but also, yeah, it's 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 a running back, and it's like, well, that's great and all, but 
it's kind of a position where there's a di- there's, there's plenty of guys you can kind of plug and play, especially when you you get the kind of talent around them at at Oklahoma. Yeah. And while we're while, while we're talking about high school Texas running backs, Lee, um, Kennedy Brooks was a uh, was I mean I think maybe somewhat of a legendary player in in Texas high school football. I mean he had just had amazing numbers, and I think he played at the highest class of Texas football. But he was a guy who I think got a pretty late offer from OU in the process, and I think he, he became kind of like a four-star recruit pretty late in the process because he, he came up uh, sort of, you know, he, he was sort of a late bloomer in high school or whatnot. Lee, I was watching some, some highlights from last season. Kennedy Brooks is awesome. Yeah. Like his, his, his vision and his, his cuts in the open field are devastating. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, and... I could see that from his debut in the spring game, and he was very good in that. And I didn't. And you know, I feel so. I feel pretty good about it. I feel a little bit, a little vindicated. And yeah, granted, I'm, it sucks that he had that he got a lot of playing time last year because Rodney Anderson was out. That sucks, but um, that was yeah, that was his coming out party. And he was he was great. I mean, he was basically in a weird a weird way kind of the Rodney Anderson of. Mm-hmm. from 2017 and 2018 where he came in halfway through the year and split time with Trey Sermon was really good and you know and and I'm sure we'll we'll get into this much more maybe during media days and also in August when we get closer to the year uh Kennedy Brooks is the best back in the Big 12 I am I am very much con- convinced of that now all right so let's move on now to some Jalen Redmond talk, and more specifically, just some more blood clots talk. And we've got some new information, and the new information is about blood clots, not not new information on Jalen Redmond. Just want to be clear about that. Of course, the last thing we heard about Redmond is that he's good to go throughout the summer without any limitations. And again, that was from Lincoln Riley about a month or so ago, late May, he said that. When it comes to Redmond, you all know this. If you listen to the podcast, I initially thought that his playing days at Oklahoma were going to be over. But in hindsight, I think that was an opinion made without enough medical information. And upon learning more about blood clots, mostly thanks to listeners out there who've weighed in on Facebook, I've evolved my position, and I think Redmond's outlook is a lot more optimistic than I initially thought. Grant, you've always been a little more optimistic about Redmond than I have been. Has your position on his future at Oklahoma changed a whole lot in the last month or so since we've been getting a little more information about blood clots sent in by listeners to the show? It's crystallized it, I think, for the most part. I, I think you can, um, you know, weird freak injury notwithstanding occurring, you know, in the in, in fall practice. I go ahead and pencil him in. I think he's he's going to be one of the one of the top eleven guys who starts on defense on day one. Yeah, and I'm leaning more and more to that as I learn more information. And let's get into it. The latest bit of info that we got was from an actual doctor. His name is Taylor. And upon listening to one of our recent shows where we discussed Jalen Redmond, Taylor reached out to us and dropped some knowledge that we're incredibly thankful for. His message was pretty thorough, and I want to read through it and then stop at certain places where I need to maybe put some different things into context or explain some things further. And Grant, jump in too if there's any point you want to stop. You know, that's because I have this in the script here, a couple of points where I'm going to stop. But if there's anything that you want to jump into, uh, just let me know and I'll stop. But uh, I'll begin with Taylor's message. Here we go. He says blood clots or to the medical community thrombus form for many numerous reasons. And to keep this on the shorter side, he says, I'll keep this light on medical jargon, which 
we thank him for that. He says, clots in the veins. The concern here is deep vein thrombosis or DVT. So DVT for short, deep vein thrombosis. Clots in the veins are classified as provoked or unprovoked. He says, provoked means there's a definable cause. Injury, immobility, vascular, circulatory problems, cancer. They are low risk for recurrence and treated until the clot goes away. Unprovoked means that there's not a known causative event. The gist of this is that Jalen Redmond's future depends on whether or not they found out why he had the clot. Often in the older population, an unknown cancer is discovered. This becomes the provoking incident, and after treatment for the cancer, the risk is removed for DVT. That's where Redmond's situation is questionable, but in my opinion, hopeful. Redmond did state he injured his leg during that spring game prior to developing clots. The injury is not known, but he's a big guy, and larger-sized people carry a larger risk. If he was immobilized or resting his injured leg, that increases the risk. Did he travel home after the game-long car ride? Uh, that equates to immobility as well. Any number of one-off factors could be the cause for his DVT forming and moving to his lungs. And then that became a pulmonary embolism. Now, at this point, I do want to stop for a moment. Dr. Taylor, and yes, I'm going to call him Dr. Taylor for the purpose of this podcast. He mentioned that Redmond said he injured his leg during the spring prior to developing the blood clots. And I wanted to highlight that point because I think it's obviously important because uh, this could put him in the provoked category for blood clots. Joe Masato from the Oklahoman wrote an article last November with quotes from Redmond's mother. So he went right to the source or I mean, right to the family. And in the story, Masato reports that, quote, doctors think the blood clots may have originated in his leg, perhaps from an injury he suffered just before OU spring game, end quote. I know Joe, he's a very good reporter, and that's some great info right there. And I wasn't able to find that info anywhere except for Joe's reporting. Granted, this could be, you know, privilege information on you know some of the message board sites things like that, that i just don't know about but as far as public stuff that i've seen i that was the only time that i saw the the doctors you know think the blood clot may have originated in his leg from a previous injury perhaps so uh, i just really wanted to bring that up again just to kind of to bring home dr taylor's point about what he said about how that could have been the reason why the clots formed it could be a provoked thing uh I could continue, Grant. I'll, I'll stop here. If Do you have anything that you'd like to throw in, or should I just keep going? No, just keep going. I think this I feel is like good. I'm talking a lot. Okay. So back to the message from Dr. Taylor. He says, now here's the counterpoint. He could have a blood clotting disorder, throm- uh, let, me, let me pronounce Thrombophilia. This. Thrombophilia. Okay, so he could have a blood clotting disorder called thrombophilia. Thank you. But that is not in... And of itself, the end of his career. There's lots of types with differing risks. So I'll end the thrombophilia discussion here. So now he wants to, doctor wants to break us down into different signs. So he says, let's look at the bad signs, the bad signs, things we don't know. Does Jalen Redmond have a clotting disorder? Does he have vascular abnormalities? We don't know, but I'm sure by now the team doctors do know. And having him back points to a lower risk cause for developing another clot. There is the potential problem in that if a clot develops in the vein, it may cause injury in valves in the veins or injured the veins themselves. 
that would put Redmond at a higher risk. So he might have become a higher risk. Again, this is Dr. Taylor's message. One additional point is that athletes are exposed to factors that increase risk all the time. And this is actually a part, this is me talking now, Lee. Uh, I did read up on this a little bit. So I'm and glad to read this in this the following in his message because I have read about this and it's good to get this from a doctor. So to continue, uh, one additional point, athletes are uh, can be exposed to factors that increase the risk of a blood clot. Those risks are dehydration, inflammation, long team bus slash plane rides, frequent injuries, things like that. So he says Jalen Redmond may have unknowingly been piling up risks, mistakes a freshman is apt to make. He was dehydrated, injured his leg at the spring game, and was told to stay off of it for a while. He's just theorizing here. Uh, then since spring practice was over, maybe he went on a long car ride with his teammates somewhere. He's just, and this is this doctor just kind of theorizing maybe the risks of why it happened. He continues, his second time, his recurrence, might very well have been due to inadequate treatment of the initial clot. Clotting is a delicate balance as one side tries to make the clot and the other tries to break it down. But clot tends to make more clot if the initial reason isn't fully resolved. And he adds that it's doubtful that we'll ever find out what actually happened here. So I'm going to pause. This is me jumping in again here with some uh, some more thoughts. And you may have heard this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Another listener, Sydney messaged us on Facebook detailing his history with blood clots. Sydney's theory was that Redmond's initial clot never went away naturally and that Redmond came back to play too early. Then those uh, that same clot, that was the culprit the second time when uh, it the recurrence came back and then Redmond was finally shut down for good in late October. I guess maybe, no, actually it was November. Uh, now, Dr. Taylor, he mentioned in his message that, uh, I just brought this up, that the second time may have been due to an adequate treatment of the initial clot. And I think that's what Sydney thinks happened. And so according to the doctor, that is possible. It's possible that's what happened. So I just wanted to kind of pause and, and bring that up again because we appreciate Sydney's input uh, in his personal ordeal. Uh, back to Dr. Taylor's message for an optimistic ending. This is uh, the rest of his message. He says, but... Jalen Redmond's return does signal that the team physicians don't think his risk of recurrence is high. Redmond's risk is likely higher than the average person, but not necessarily career ending. Knowing that he has a slightly higher chance to clot leads to more preventative measures, like more frequent stretching and ambulation during long road trips, keeping hydrated, avoiding caffeine and alcohol, don't cross your legs or stay scrunched up in your seat. So it's not at all a bad prognosis at this point. End of the message. So I know that was a long message, but it was incredibly thorough, very detailed, and I learned a lot about that, uh, a lot about, about blood clots. Again, just want to reiterate, at first I, I thought, based on the, the research I had done, half, I'll, I'll say it, close your kids' ears, half-ass internet research, uh, you know, losing at Chris Bosch's situation and a couple of other situations of other players that have had blood clots in their lungs and the fact that Redmond had it in his lungs that just to me my initial thought was that pointed to some really bad things but now that I've learned more and more about it I'm a lot more optimistic about Jalen Redmond so Grant you heard all that uh, I had a couple points where I jumped in with other thoughts uh, do you have anything that that you want to add from that that you found particularly interesting no at this point in time Lee I am just sitting here and hoping um, that he gets through you're a sponge you're a sponge you're just taking all the information I am and just absorbing. What? I mean I'm not I didn't I didn't go to medical school. I'm not a doctor. I don't you know, I don't really have any thoughts on on the human body in general. 
Um, <laughs> on the human body. Okay. All I know is that I'm just sitting here. I am just keeping my my fingers and my toes crossed that he doesn't get hurt during fall practice because I could I could easily see that happening just in a weird twist of fate. Yeah. Well, don't keep those body parts crossed too long because then you're at risk to for, to you know to get a blood clot. Who do you think? We have four. Who? Mm-hmm. What would be the most devastating injury in fall camp? Like out for the oh season, my. who would it be? Uh, you want to play this game? This is not a game that. This is a terrible karmic type game to play, but uh, uh, uh J- probably Jalen Hurts. Probably Jalen Hurts, but that that's an easy one. Who would be number two? Mm. You could probably argue it'd be Creed Humphrey. Oh, that's a, yeah, yeah. The the one experienced offensive lineman returning, yeah, that'd be tough. Yeah, I'd have a, I'd have a hard time deciding uh, for number two behind uh, Humphrey and and Gallimore. The uh, what's the guy the the grad transfer offensive lineman? What's that guy's name? That guy, RJ I mean, Proctor. He, Proctor would be he'd be the center if Creed got hurt, right? I mean, they'd be like, hey, I dude, would, you're, I would assume you're so. Center. Yeah, I, I would assume so. Or one of those walk-ons that was playing center nope, in, that, in spring I heard would be it. That's not going to happen. It would it would almost certainly be R.J. Proctor. <laughs> let's uh, let's not bring up that ever again of Creed Humphrey getting hurt or really anybody getting injured, because as we've someone seen is, with the exception of Rodney will. Anderson, yeah, yeah, guys just get banged up and gosh, we'll. S- We'll see if any of these defensive backs come back since they were just decimated saying, in the they, spring, apparently. They have they have not had a relatively injury-free season since they won the national title in 2000. I think we've talked about this before. <sighs> Can you believe that a medical doctor listens to West of Everest? I was about awesome. a, I was, yeah, just a surprise when I found out that Lincoln Riley listens to our show, too. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I... Lincoln text me the other day and say, "Hey, great job, man! With the uh, with everything." You call you're him doing. Link, though, don't you? I thought you guys are on like on, on like nickname basis now. No, I mean, he doesn't like that. I'm not that close with him. Yeah, he gets it only only a select few. He didn't even let Bob Stoops call him that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we're up to week eight now in our early OU opponent preview segment. October 19th is when Oklahoma plays West Virginia in Norman. Mountaineers, no more Will Greer, no more Dana Holgerson, no more David Sills, no more Gary Jennings. Just a a very different-looking team this fall. Uh, There's one major part of West Virginia that I am thrilled to follow this fall, and then one secondary thing that I'm – I wouldn't say I'm thrilled, but I'm certainly interested in. I'm going to save that for here in a bit. First, I'm going to turn it over to Grant because didn't you say like a few weeks ago that you thought the Mountaineers could be pretty bad in 2019? Yeah, I think they're going to suck. Like they're going to suck. Oh, okay. Like, well, let's I'm, see. I'm, they... I'm looking at their first six games. They're going to start the season two and four. So you know, I don't. It's going to be that's going to be pretty hard to to come back. James from. Madison, week one. Didn't James Madison beat Votek last year? Was that was that last? Year? Was that James Madison who? Beat Virginia Tech. Uh, and they have that they have beaten Virginia Tech, but I don't know if it was last year. Maybe it wasn't James Madison. Uh, James Madison definitely has beaten Virginia Tech, but it was like five years ago before Fuente was even there. Okay, I can't remember the team that beat uh, Virginia Tech last year. It was uh, like Rhode Island or something, or no, that, it wasn't. Oh, Rhode it was Island. it was UMass. Was it UMass? It was UMass. Yeah. You think? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. I am. It was. It was UMass. Mm, that doesn't sound right. Well, it's a good thing I have a computer right in front of me. Oh, so. So you've already looked it up. 
Well, I mean, I'm looking it up like right now. Yeah, so we're both. It's like a race. Ah, uh, yeah, out. I was totally wrong. It was Old Dominion. Close <laughs> enough. <laughs> Close enough. Right. Close enough. Um, all right. So I was trying to find Virginia Tech or Virginia Tech. What's Virginia? So James Madison, Missouri at Missouri. That's that's kind of interesting. But yeah, that's NC State, Kansas, Texas, Iowa State. Yeah, yeah. That that does look like two and four. It's like two and four, three and three if things break like really in their favor. But I. Like I, I think, um, like obviously they're gonna beat James Madison and they're gonna beat Kansas. I think uh, they're at Missouri. That game's not even a toss up. I think Missouri might beat up on them. Um, NC State. I guess I don't know a ton about them, but they kind of seem like to have. They seems like they have the exact same team every single year. So I, I fully expect <laughs> NC State. I fully expect NC State to be like a seven and five type team, which <laughs> I think is team every year, which I think is gonna be a lot better than West Virginia, and then. They opened the Big 12 with Texas and Iowa State. Or actually, they opened the Big 12 with Kansas, but um, then have uh, Texas and Iowa State after a bye week. Um, they're not going to beat Texas or Iowa State. Like, what? Virginia is going to suck this year. They're going to be bad. Okay. Ryan Finley is their quarterback. He's gone. I've heard, he's on the Bengals now. I, I heard that he's just, he had a horrible, he had a horrible, like, OTA in the rookie camp. Uh, man, I, that guy was not like I was not impressed at all by watching him when I watched NC State play last year, the last couple of years. He just wasn't very good at all. Um, anyways, uh, yeah. Well, okay. So it sounds like you're just kind of ripping on him, and you know you might be right. Uh, Neil Brown, the head kind of ripping on him. They're like they're not going to be good. They they yeah, lost. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to give Neil Brown a little bit of credit. I'm they do have about him. I, I know they, they do have some experience coming back up front, but they lose their best offensive linemen, Yadni yeah. Kajust. Uh, they, they lose uh, two of their three best receivers, their two best receivers, and they, they bring back you know the third guy whose name, Sims, I think is his last name. His, his name's escaping me. Um, I can't remember. They, Boy, we did a lot of research. <laughs> they literally, like, they, um, they're losing, like, their top four safeties from the depth chart, and they didn't mm-hmm. even graduate. They just left the program. <laughs> One of I'm which, out. one of which was on was probably the best player on their team coming into the season. Left, yeah. West Virginia is going to really suck this year. All right, well, like, here's like a... like might 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 be able to pencil them in like to ninth in the conference behind Kansas. Uh, all right, well, I don't know. I wouldn't go that far yet. But uh, the one big thing that I'm thrilled to to watch out for, and I honestly didn't quite catch on to this until very recently when i started doing research on west virginia so west virginia's defensive coordinator grant vic coning ring a bell at all i thought it was vic caning is how it's pronounced uh, nope. caning Koning. is so much better anyway continue does that name ring a bell at all well, it does yes yeah so remember when we were talking about potential oklahoma defensive coordinators he was one of the kind of random wild card guys that i was looking into because of one he, he had ties to Oklahoma he's from Owasso and he just had a, a a long reputation or a recent reputation at Troy of improving that defense and obviously his his age probably made him not really a candidate at all for Lincoln Riley's eyes and who knows if he even if he even knew about him but uh I'm excited to see Vic Coning in the Big 12 because this guy had he was one of the guys I was kind of like yeah I think this guy you know might know what he's doing but the last time he was at a power five school was North Carolina 
And uh, that was in 2014, and North Carolina's defense was just dreadful. Awful. I mean, they allowed six and a half yards per play and had a, one of the worst defenses in all of college football. And then he went to Troy, and uh, he, he improved Troy's defense quite a bit. Troy's defense has been good, been really good the last four seasons under, under Vic Koning. But, uh, again, that is Troy and uh, not the Big 12. So I'm, ki- I'm intrigued to watch West Virginia's defense under the tutelage of Vic Koning. Yeah, you know, I sure I fun for you, I guess. I I there <laughs> I just think yeah, like the the bottom 4 in this conference coming up this season. Um and go ahead and you can just go ahead and write, you know, Kansas and and Red Ink there the, in last place in the conference, but those other three teams, uh Texas Tech, Kansas State and West Virginia, they're going to have a hell of a battle for for spots eight, nine, and seven, or uh, for spots uh, eight, seven, and six. Am I am I counting right? Eight, seven, and six. <laughs> oh my uh, goodness! Yes, yes. It seems like you were counting those numbers down correctly. Yeah. Basically, what I'm saying though is that the the bottom half of the conference is is ha- really has a chance to be dreadful, like really bad. This is not going to be Vic Koning's first attempt at defending big 12 teams he has one prior season in the big 12 he was at kansas state in 2009 and k-state's defense wasn't that good they were uh i mean total defense wise they were number 56 in the nation but uh, they gave up 5.6 yards per play which which is not great so a lot has changed though in the last 10 years even in the especially in the big 12 so we'll we'll see hey he uh he got illinois he, gave, he, he was able to coordinate a top 10 Illinois defense in 2011. And uh, in the mid-2000s, remember you probably remember he was at Clemson. I think we talked about him before on the show months and months and months ago. But uh, he was really good at Clemson back before Clemson was Clemson. I mean, he, he put up top 20 defenses at Clemson for four straight years. Wait, so. we're still talking about Vic Koning? <laughs> yeah. Well, based on that, I think we should stop talking about him then. So he's been everywhere. He's, I mean, he's... He's got a long resume, man. He's got an attacking style defense, so we'll see if. And that's what it seems like a lot of these defenses. That's what West Virginia already was trying I mean, to do. Yeah, that's so what, we'll that's what they did under Tony Gibson. Translates. So. Yeah. All right. Well, as you can probably tell over the last few weeks, we've kind of ever since the Houston preview, we've kind of mailed in these uh, these opponent previews because I'm not so sure they're that interesting to be. Well, with. I don't know. I think we, we came to the realization that we're going to have to do all that work anyway. Once we, you know, once we actually yeah. preview those teams and we'll so actually have some, a lot of it's kind of redundant, too, which will be nice. Yeah. 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 But I don't know. I think I just having sort of general conversations on the teams, I think is better. Just sort of free will in it. Picking. Yeah. Picking out like one or two different interesting things that we find worth it. All right. So the last part of the show that I want to talk about, and this is the part of the show that I teased 50 minutes ago or so. I promise you'll have an opinion on this. And this is a random thing I was thinking of today that I heard on Clay Travis's radio show. I think it was two summers ago. And we've talked about Clay Travis once or twice on the show. I mean, I, I think he's really entertaining. He's he bring And a lot of the times he's pretty entertaining when stuff that's not involved with sports, which is kind of interesting. He just, he, you know, he finds some decent stuff to talk about. And, you know, in the summertime in sports talk radio, which is what he has, he has a, a you know, sports talk radio show. There's not a whole lot to talk about. So you got to try to think of conversations and t- different topics. And he always kind of makes fun of 
all the opinion shows out there in the summertime, and even during the regular season sometimes too, everyone always hits on MJ versus LeBron and who's better, and it's just the most cliched, boring sports talk radio slash sports talk television show topic. And so he was trying to think of, this is again a couple summers ago, like you know, what's some good sports summer topics? And so he came up with the idea of peanut butter and jelly, you know, one of the greatest sandwiches ever. Very simple. And everyone's had a PB&J at some point. What is more important in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? The peanut butter or the jelly? And he literally did a, a radio show where he took calls for about two hours from people on PB and J sandwiches. And what's more important, the peanut butter or the jelly? And the vast, vast majority of people... At Grant, I don't know if you heard that episode. It was, again, a couple summers ago. What would you anticipate? What do you think the vast majority of people were saying when they, when they, you know, it was pea, peanut butter versus jelly? What's more important? What do you think most people were saying? I'm pretty opinionated on this. I'm assuming most people were saying peanut butter. Yeah, yeah, peanut butter. And I really wish I can remember a lot of the different reasons why. And, and honestly, this is not great for this particular podcast. I can't think of any examples. But I just remember thinking that, I never heard the actual correct argument, and I had the correct argument, and I still have it today. And oh, I'm just kind of curious to find out if you have the correct argument as well. Oh, I do, actually. Correct. And I have, yeah, I have, I have chemistry backing me as well. Mm. Okay. So, obviously, it's just you and me. We, don't, we can't take phone calls to get everyone's opinion. So, I mean, if you're this podcast, you know, you're, you're very opinionated on this and you want to comment... Obviously, go to West of Everest Facebook page. Really easy to find. Go to Facebook to search West of Everest. West of Everest at gmail.com. Twitter, Grant and I. I'm at Lee Benson News 9. Grant's at Grant Benson 25. If you hear this podcast and you want to give us your take on PB&J, what's more important, peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter or jelly, chime in. Uh, so, again, I think I have the correct take and the number one 100% right take on this, but so do you. So I'm curious to see if... Uh, both of our thoughts are the same. So, you know what? Since I brought this up, I'll let you go, Grant. So, what's the correct take? What's more important, peanut butter or jelly? Well, so jelly is 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 obviously the correct take, and it's it's for actually a pretty simple reason. When you have a peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter is a very protein base. It's a very heavy, uh, it's a very heavy substance, and you need the jelly in there to act as acid to cut the to cut the thickness of the peanut butter, and so. Um, this is something that is, you know, if, if, if you ever read like any sort of cookbook or anything along those lines, um, there has to be acidity in, in certain things. And that's what the jelly does to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It cuts through the peanut butter. And so otherwise, if it was just a regular peanut butter sandwich, which is a thing, by the way, that I like. I like peanut butter sandwiches. But a lot of the times you need like milk or something with it because otherwise you'll be like, you know, it'll be tough to, you know, to, to, uh, to swallow through the peanut butter. And that is what, and the jelly acts as acid to cut all of that. And, and what that does to our palates, it just makes for a, just for a nice sort of nice little treat. You know what I mean? I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, man. <laughs> They're so good. But you know what? I got to say, this is actually, this is very impressive. You, that was a very, you mentioned it before, the scientific, that was the science, that was hundred, that was hundred percent correct. The scientific way, you you know what you got it right, and I I got to add to it though because my reasoning is not scientific. Yeah, I don't I didn't know like the nomenclature or anything, and obviously you guys could tell I was I was definitely, 
I wasn't I, I, I wasn't making that up as I went along. I was just trying to uh, I, I was trying to uh, to translate stuff that I've read into I don't know into normal. You English. left out. I I think you kind of were trying to infer this, but you just kind of left out uh, the most important part, though. And here's the reason why jelly. You're correct. Jelly is the most important part of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And again, I never your argument you just made. Nobody ever called in and gave that take. And here's the problem, too, is Clay and the show. Clay was defending jelly. Clay was all about defending jelly and everybody else was defending peanut butter. And Clay, who's a lawyer and is really good at arguing things, still never came up with that argument. He never brought up the fact that, I mean, what you said and what I'm about to say, the following. Here is my take on it. Jelly is the most important part of a PB&J sandwich because what exists already, as you mentioned, a peanut butter sandwich. That's a thing that exists, okay? And a peanut butter sandwich, in my opinion, I think peanut butter sandwiches are gross. I don't, I've never had one. I will never eat one because I particularly, actually, I don't really like peanut butter that much. It's fine. It's fine. It's, people love it. And I'm sure, I think you love it, Grant. I, people love peanut butter. I think it's fine. It's, it's a nice complimentary uh, spread. It's a nice complimentary comment. Peanut butter is a staple and it's a staple for a reason. You're insane. No, it's, it's fine. So I've never had a, pe- a peanut butter sandwich because I would never want one because it's just a very bland kind of boring sandwich, but it exists and people like it fine. The reason why jelly is the most important ingredient is because you add jelly to the p- a peanut butter sandwich and it turns it into a phenomenal sandwich with that sweet little kick to it that makes a PB&J so freaking delicious. The mix of the sweet and the salty of the peanut butter, it just it, it mixes perfectly. That's why jelly is the most important ingredient in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You mentioned the acidity of it. Really, the reason is because it adds that sweet to mix with the, the savory. You get a sweet and savory treat because of the jelly. That's why jelly is the most important. Boom. And we're both pretty much on the same page. I'm surprised. I, I didn't think you'd have the answer to this question, but you did. Yeah, do you want you actually do you want to know where I, I came up with that answer? And I, you know, when I when I first the saw this, Network? I huh. Uh, no, it actually wasn't on the Food Network. It was on a uh, it was on a documentary that I believe is available now on Amazon Prime, and it actually has nothing to do with food. It's about it's it's a documentary about wine. Oh, um, the sommelier. Som, yeah, it's it's called Som S O M M, and um, one of the guys that they're that they're interviewing he he's he's basically trying to break down like the chemistry of different wines and why they taste a certain way and he uses a peanut butter and jelly as a perfect example of that and he says why is jelly the most important part of this is because it has the acid to cut through the peanut butter hmm. and so well i say it's uh he says acid i say it's got the sweetness to to, to make it a sweet and savory treat well i mean yeah this is kind of the same idea i'm sure it's the it's exact just, same idea you're just you're you're not uh you're not articulating i'm not as smart very, i'm not as smart yeah. as a som a sommelier no, I mean, but I just I couldn't believe that. Again, I just was randomly thinking about this today because I I couldn't believe that nobody called in or nobody on the show had that argument for jelly. It blew my mind. Like that was never made in like two or three hours of the show where people called in. It was a great episode because it was just it's a topic that everybody's got an opinion on. Because yeah. peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are universal. Everyone's yeah, and everybody and is like qualified to have an opinion on as well. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. I, I I think a lot of the time most people are probably just going to go with peanut butter and that. In that instance, just because I think by themselves, peanut butter is much better than jelly by, you know, by itself. Um, and I think a lot of the time that's that's probably how people are would would vote along those lines. Just because, hey, peanut butter is the best part of a PB&J in terms of tasting, then it's the most important part. But no, it is not. It would that's not. Why you don't make a, that's why you can't make, emotion, can't make emotional arguments like that. You just 
you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. You get emotional. You think peanut butter is all great and the best. And then you just make a dumb argument about how peanut butter is the most important ingredient in a PB&J sandwich. You come off sound like an idiot. Jeez. I have, I, I just got more college football thoughts. I wish I would have thought of that before we started talking about okay, well, PB&J. We'll hold, we'll hold that for later. Actually, I mean, that, that is our show. And I was going to ask you, what do you think? Should we do a show next week? Fourth of July? Uh, uh, I mean, nobody uh, else will be doing shows. I mean, should we be the one show that actually provides content for our loyal listeners on the during the holiday week, or should we just kind of should we be cop should we kind of cop out a little bit and take a break? I don't know. I mean, because I don't know. The week let's, after that, you know, I think decide. we'll have let's we'll, decide right now, or I don't know. Let's decide hmm. later. We can we can always. Uh, Ooh, I think so a lot of the time, people just kind of they they see the they see the episodes go into their little podcast feeds, and that's when they know there's a new episode. So yeah, that's true. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'm, but I don't know. I got some, I, we, we, we could easily just do an entire episode probably about playoff expansion that could go for three or four hours, but I don't want to do that uh, for, for three or four hours. I don't want to do that. True. But maybe but, for 10 to 20 minutes, maybe. No. But really what I, what I was actually going to say is that I was, um, before we got into PB and J, I was going to sit there and talk about how annoying it is that. It's been a really quiet off season with nothing going on, and uh, then I just realized that this is exactly what happened last season, all the way up until August when the Urban Meyer stuff started going down. Oh La- man! Last year was a really slow off season as well, with like really no movement, nothing, no big stories or anything, except for, uh, of course, uh, the, you know that Maryland football player died in off season workouts, which of course was really sad. Um, but then, but then after that, we had the Urban Meyer and the the Zach Smith, you know, terrible, awful thing that ended up. Hey, remember, Urban Meyer's not even at Ohio State anymore. No, so. he's not. No, he's not. It's, he's just taking a year off before he takes the USC job. Is basically everyone's predicting now. I know that's kind of like a bit now that everyone's predicting, but like because well, I mean, that's it's, that's it's, almost certainly going to happen. Exactly. It's gonna. It's <laughs> he's not. He's not done coaching. That's what Urban Meyer does. Although <laughs> I think just, we can. I, th- I think we can pretty safely say though that if let's say Clay Helton, you know, gets fired at the end of this year, which is a virtual certainty, <laughs> um, I mean, and and if Urban Meyer takes that job, is that just do we even need to speculate anymore? He's just he's a weird, probably terrible person, in in all likelihood. Oh, I mean, I think there's enough evidence to already kind of suggest that that he's just not a not a particularly good uh, good guy, and also too, he's not that great on TV, and he's going to be doing the college football for Fox coming up this fall. I just, I've never found him particularly interesting when he's on TV. So clearly he has that job because he's Urban Meyer and he's got an incredible amount of experience and insight into the game. But I mean, have you ever found him particularly interesting whenever he's done like color or whenever he's been on Cowherd show or any of those shows? I mean, no, I've always found him to be pretty just like, just, yeah, just, just uh, like this. I'm Urban Meyer. Yeah. Um, You know who is great on TV is Nick Saban. He's really good on TV. Um, I I would not be surprised if he's like on College Game Day or something when he finally retires. Who's the gosh? Who's the guy? Um, who's the big SEC media guy? I'm blanking on his name right now. Feinbaum. Fine, yeah. So I saw Saban just ripping out, ripping Feinbaum a new one by the bathrooms at SEC football media days a few years ago. Wait, seriously? Uh, yeah. I like they were having like this. a private conversation. You didn't tell me about this. Well, it was. Do you remember when? Do you have any memories at all of Saban getting mad at Feinbaum on the air during SEC football media days, like on the set? <laughs> do you have any memories of that? I don't, but I can like I, you know, I can picture it. 
yeah, he got Feinbaum was questioning Saban. It was back whenever he had a couple guys. I think there's a couple guys on Alabama that had gotten in trouble in the offseason, and maybe one of them had a gun or two of them had a gun. It was like a like a they got stopped or something like that. And I remember that. that was a couple years ago. Yeah. yeah, and these are obviously two really good players and. And so Feinbaum was trying to, I think, he was just questioning them and like figure out what the plan was, and Saban did not like that. He didn't like the fact that he was getting being asked about these, these. I think it was two players that, you know, what the discipline was going to be, and he ended up getting mad and yelling at Feinbaum, like, on the air. So, like, it was on the SEC network, so that was all public. But then, it was like later in the day after that was done, I just happened to be walking by, and I realized that, oh, that's Nick Saban, and oh, that's Paul Feinbaum, and he, Saban, they were, having, they were still talking it out, and there was like a, a obviously, an SEC all the all the media days things i'm sure is that there's police officers always with the coaches and stuff is security but there's a police officer there and i remember thinking like gosh like i i really want to get my phone out and film this because i know this would be really easy to put on twitter and stuff and but i just thought nah, i I don't want to be that guy that's filming it and they're going to obviously see me and it's just so i didn't get video of i think there might have been video on it randomly by somebody that posted it kind of like they kind of secretly held their phone down and shot it. But yeah, so that was a whole thing that uh, I got to see. That was weird. Nothing really came of it, but... Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that sounds like some pretty juicy stuff. I would I would hope that there would be more there, but I guess not. Hey, did I, you I mean, read... I, uh, yeah, I put that in my story that day on, on TV. I was, again, this is back when I was covering Texas A&M, but that was like the most interesting thing that happened at SEC Media Days that, that particular day. And I was able to say, so right here I saw Nick Saban and Paul Feinbaum arguing about something so great reporting on my part changing body award-winning mm. <laughs> changing lanes here real quickly did you happen to read that bleacher report article about willie taggart and florida state and and how uh and how it was basically all jimbo fisher's fault for last year no no i, I oh, okay no i have um, not okay yeah i i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a homework before our next show i think you should you should uh search out that uh that article and read it and we'll we'll discuss it all right, so we'll discuss that, and we also didn't discuss uh, Baker Mayfield ripping on Sam Ellinger last week, which we could probably talk for a decent amount of time with that. I'm not yeah, really I... sure what, what, what Mayfield's doing anymore, but he's staying on brand, I suppose. Uh, yeah, by the I, way, I, he, I, I certainly yeah. have opinions on that. We could probably talk about that for a while. And by the way, he didn't really say anything particularly interesting at the camp he did last week in Norman, and it was a whole thing, and he only talked for like five minutes and unfortunately I couldn't get any questions in because there was like 30 people trying to interview him and I got stuck in the back with a camera and it was a whole annoying thing that uh, really only happens whenever people like Baker Mayfield are available for a scrum interview as you might expect he's uh, pretty popular so that was uh, a frustrating day in in Norman but uh, I'm so sorry man that yeah. sounds terrible yeah, I wasn't able to ask him Ask him uh, his phone number and if you want well, to what were you gonna? Friends. Well, did you have like, did you actually have anything like queued up that you were gonna ask him? What was it gonna be? Well, yeah, I wanted to ask him if he wanted to hang out later. Uh, if he wanted to, you know, what are they playing now? Fortnite. I mean, do you Fortnite? really want to hang out with him? Aren't you like, are you like eight years older than him? That's true. That's true. Uh, so I'm not really sure if like, I mean, that's like a totally different like generation. I don't, I don't think Baker's a. He's not. I think he's Gen Z, isn't he? So he's. So, so he's one of those weirdos. No, I mean, I think he's still technically a millennial. I think millennials go pretty far, pretty young. I think he's 24, 24, 20, something yeah. like that. So that would put him... Uh, okay, wow. This yeah, is, you know what? Yeah, I think that would make him a millennial. 
my wife, who is also 24, is like sitting here looking at me like that is millennial. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty big, pretty big range for millennials. I think. I think I'm technically kind of. I mean, I'm I'm in the middle-ish slash it's towards like, the end. It's like 82 to 96 or something like that. Hmm. Uh, okay, this is. <laughs> I think we're done here. Uh, yeah, I guess stay tuned to uh, your podcast feed. We'll we'll see if we do a show next week. I don't know. Maybe we'll be celebrating America instead. We'll find out. For Grant, I'm Lee. This is West of Everest. <laughs>